Welcome to episode 11 of the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Renee Teet. Today we meet data scientist Stephanie Rivera, who started out researching machine learning in an academic lab and has since worked for the U.S. Department of Defense, a major consulting firm, and now at a startup called MyStrength. I'll talk to Stephanie about how she got to where she is today and about her role in creating the Field Guide to Data Science book and the Explore Data Science course. Afterward, I'll introduce the Data Science Learning Club activity, which is on logistic regression. First, let's talk to Stephanie Rivera. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Renee. Okay, so we'll start out this interview the way that I start out each of them. Do you consider yourself to be a data scientist? Yes, I do. So my background actually leans towards data science really strongly. Um, I was lucky enough that before data science became this cool thing, that uh, just following what I enjoyed seemed to really kind of lead me in that path. I started out in really heavy mathematics. And so my, my bachelor's and my master's are both in math. Um, but I focus more on like applied um, types of mathematics during my undergrad towards biology and, and uh, kind of the medical field and things. And then during my master's degree, it was more of like a strictly pure math um, as far as my thesis went and things like that. So then I knew I wanted to focus more applied again. So I began a PhD in computer engineering, focusing in machine learning, which um, was was perfect, and I really enjoyed it. Then, of course, you know, I got a job offer, and so I, I left to work for the government and um, doing exactly what I wanted to do, which was okay. Well, before you get too far, let's go back and go through that in detail. Okay. So when you were a kid, before you, so you mentioned your bachelor's, before you even went to college, um, were you especially good at math? Was there an indication that you would go into a math field? Yeah, I would have to say so. Um, early on, I, I participated in things like Odyssey of the Mind, as well as uh, like gifted and talented math classes. And then I also, I was in a, a really bad car wreck when I was 16, which made it so I had to relearn how to read. So one of the only wow. things that didn't seem to be very heavily impacted by that was my talent in math. So I kind of really hung on to that pretty strong after that. Wow. So did you know um, from the beginning that you wanted to do math in college uh, when you applied to schools? <laughs> no, I, I'm one of those people who like, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I was I, good at problem solving and I enjoyed just solving different problems, but I never, I always thought that like being in math meant I had to be a math teacher and I knew I wouldn't be good at that. So I started in Spanish and then I was in accounting and then I moved to um, engineering. And then while I was in engineering, I took calculus and started to get to know some of the professors and teachers who explained to me all the wonderful things you could do with mathematics. And I was like, whoa, that's where I need to be. So uh, from there on, I, that's kind of how I still ended up in the math track as far as my degrees go. Okay, so where was your undergrad degree at and uh, what did you do right after undergrad? My, I went to Colorado State for my bachelor's and then I went straight to uh, East Tennessee State where I participated in a National Science Foundation fellowship, uh, studying graph theory and, and working with an underprivileged elementary school, teaching them mathematics, and I created a math club and fun things like that. So, 
And did you tell them all the things that you can do with math other than teach? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did. In fact, I spent um, quite a bit of time trying to communicate that with the different classes that I worked with, just to, to let them know that being in math doesn't mean you're a teacher, um, necessarily. Not that we don't really need great teachers, but there are other options. So, so what are some of the options that excited them the most? Well, as far as learning about what kinds of things they could do, that they weren't as interested in is being able to figure out how many hours they would have to work to get an iPod. So we <laughs> brought in like these uh, magazines from Target, and I was like, now pick out things that you would want for Christmas. And then, you know, then they would get to pick different jobs that were at different rates per hour, and they could figure out... Um, you know how much how much how many hours they would have to work in order to get their iPod or to get their whatever it is they wanted out of the magazine which was kind of fun. <laughs> That's that cool. was probably their favorite thing as far as they didn't really care about what the job was as much as trying to figure out how how much money they could have. I used to do that in high school too because I worked at a fabric and craft store and there was all the, there were all these cool crafts and I wanted to buy everything and then I started figuring out how many hours I was working just to buy things at the place where I worked. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're like, I'm just going to sign my paycheck over. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. All right, so what, what was your NSF grant? What were you doing in school? It was, so I was working in graph theory and so the main thing was to be able to migrate um, both like biology and other uh, sciences in with mathematics and then being able to, to bring that to the elementary school. So that was the main focus there. My research was in graph theory, uh, specifically total domination uh, within graphs and, and whatnot. So and what, what does that mean for people that don't know? Oh, it's not a very good way to explain this. <laughs> or maybe just the basics of graph theory, like what is the type of thing that you could research knowing what you knew? Yeah, so uh, with with graph theory, it applies mostly to things like social networks or computer networks and, and things like that. So when you think about a lot about people making their Facebook graph, so you have, like, you're a node and then you're attached to other people. Um, so essentially, it was just studying the, the properties and the changes within those kinds of graphs. And, um, but from a, a pure mathematics standpoint, we didn't look at it in any applied way. It was more like... Uh, parameters that you could use to describe the, the graphs, which it can be uh, put into applied. So there was a point where I worked on a project where we were studying the differences um, in predicting things with amino acids, and so being able to structure those in a graph and then apply different kinds of graph parameters to it, you can actually use those for prediction even if they're not biologically inspired. Okay, and with the social networking, were you studying something like how the, the social network grew or how different types of relationships between groups of people? I mean, what was it you were looking at with the relationship graph? Well, as far as the relationships graph goes, um, I didn't really work with that until I got into industry. And Okay, so what type of projects did you do in school that made you decide that you definitely wanted to stick with this data science thing? Well, I just like being able to use math to do cool things. Uh, as a very patriotic family, my, my father, my grandfathers, my brother, everybody's in the military, and uh, it, we're very focused on, you know, serving your country before you start to ask for things from your country. And 
I knew I would never be the boots on the ground kind of girl. So um, the way I felt like I could contribute would be being able to use mathematics to do cool things um, in the defense sector or in the you know medical field and things like that. So I just kind of kept pushing that direction in hopes that I could get a job with the government um, to be able to support the troops in a way that made more sense for me. And so I just kind of kept following you know, what was fun and then hope that that would eventually lead to there. But it was more like, hey, you know, machine learning is cool. Let's see what I can do with it more than anything. I just kept taking courses that I liked. And more, most importantly, probably would be the relationships I built with professors. You know, talking to them about their research, what kinds of things they like to do, what things they have done, and, and where different fields could take me and how they could be applied. And building those relationships with the professors was extremely helpful as far as knowing what the next steps are. Um, because you don't have enough data to make your own decisions, I feel, early on. So with wanting to work with the military, did you think you were going to be working with like operations research or information analysis or something like that? Honestly, I didn't know. I just kind of knew that that was part of my in-game plan. Um, and were the professors helpful in directing you towards um, what types of military or government jobs would use math? Yeah, yeah, I had, I worked with a couple of different professors. Um, uh, Dr. Langston at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where I started my PhD work. Um, he and I had actually met before I picked my, my PhD school and we we actually like we're working on this problem on a on a napkin in a restaurant and uh, it turned into a paper and a relationship between uh, my master's school and, and the school I chose to go to for my PhD. But uh, he was amazing about talking about all these things I could do with graph theory and how you really need to like combine those with machine learning and whatnot and and so then just that kind of like shoved me into machine learning where. Um, University of Tennessee in Knoxville has a whole bunch of different really cool machine learning labs where you can essentially learn about all the different kinds of machine learning, whether it's distributive or, or agent-based and, and classification, all these kinds of different things. And uh, so there was just so many options there that it was, a, it was a good pick for me to go and just play. That's great. So what are those different types of machine learning and what kind of projects were they doing there at the university? Yeah, so... Uh, I focus mostly in the reinforcement learning, which is very agent-based. So that's like we have robot dogs and you figure out how to use machine learning, reinforcement learning specifically, to, to teach them how to navigate a maze um, and those kinds of things. Or recycling robots um, or different kinds of agents to play games. So uh, one of the projects I did was given a Connect 4 board, which I actually shrank because the state space was so huge. Um, could you, you know, design an agent that could essentially beat a human? And so that was kind of fun. So we did things like that within the reinforcement learning realm. Then there's also the distributive learning, which is more like multiple entities working together. So you can think of more like a smart house. So like your uh, thermostat is talking to your door, which is talking to your AC and your dishwasher and all your other different pieces kind of talking together in order to collaboratively build a smart, comfortable home, you know, those kinds of things. So um, I didn't work in that um, industry as much, which 
actually would have been cool, but you kind of had to pick one. And I was kind of, I, yeah, I picked what was fun. So. so tell us a little more about reinforcement learning. What type of tools did you use? And, you know, were you programming or, you know, what was your role in the different projects? Yeah, so I did uh, some, I guess it'd be more like scripting. MATLAB, I guess, <laughs> it's, it's kind of in the middle, right? It's not really uh -huh. programming, but it's not really scripting. So anyway, so we used MATLAB most of the time, um, which, of course, works in grad school, and then you get to the real world, and everything's too big for MATLAB. But um, <laughs> at the time, it worked out really well, even though sometimes things ran too fast or too slow. Yeah. Uh, but So I, I worked mostly with the Infit Action Perception Lab on campus, which was... Um, a lab that actually had parents that volunteered their children to be parts of different studies. So we were <clears throat> collecting data of eye tracking for infants, so they had all this really cool data where essentially babies hung out and looked at pictures and of like duckies, they made them fun at least, you know, teddy bears and things. And uh -huh. so we're trying to look at how a human would actually scan an image versus um, this regular, like, across, across, across kind of, you know, uh, digital way that we would think of, like, a computer would look at an image. So I worked with them to, to get their data in order to kind of try to see if we can't help them explain why these um, infants were looking at different things um, as, as the exchange for their data so that we could see if we could not uh, use apprenticeship learning and reinforcement learning together to uh, teach an agent to be able to scan images like a human would. Because you can't use people. Because at our at our at our point, we we think too much when we're looking at it. Now you know, if like <laughs> to in order to get remove that extra bit of I'm thinking about you're looking at me thinking of, about looking at something. You have to you have to use small children. Um, so, so I was working on that. It was a lot of fun. Um, and so you were, were you trying to train the, the robots to use computer vision that would jump around the image similar to an infant? Mm -hmm. Yeah, be able to, to essentially pick out what the important pieces were first instead of actually scanning the entire image. So. Okay, and then you mentioned that you jumped straight <gasps> from your PhD program to a job. So tell us about that experience. Yeah, so I, in between my master's and my PhD, I originally had applied for a job in the Department of Defense, and then I got the scholarship for my PhD, so I was like, oh, I'm going to go do this. Um, then again, the, towards the end of my first year, they contacted me and said, hey, we have a different position for you. You know, it's it's data science, it's on a, on a cluster, and and just doing machine learning and, and all these things. And I was like, well, wow, that's what I want to do when I'm, I'm done. Uh, so I kind of went and did that for a little while. There's not a whole lot about that that I can discuss, um, except for, I guess, more of the interactions. It was a really good place for me to grow and learn from a lot of people who'd been doing data science in, in industry before it became this data science thing. So you've talked a lot about um, professors and then people in industry that were um, kind of mentors to you. So what advice do you have for people for finding the right type of mentors and identifying, you know, who's really going to back you throughout the learning process? 
Yeah, that's it's so important. I really feel like the people who helped me throughout my pre-career were were extremely vital. And I just you know, I kind of gravitated to the people who seemed to enjoy things I enjoyed. And then being able to share that same kind of passion helps people bond. You know, um, it seems strange for somebody to be like, oh, yeah, we bonded over complex analysis. But that's exactly <laughs> what happens, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Going in to talk to professors about problems and what you're thinking about, and then those that seem to really click with you and enjoy the things you do, just talk to them. They're usually very open. Um, and then in, in industry as well, finding those people who are willing to help you learn how to fish instead of give you the answers is the key. I had one specific um, colleague early on um, while working for the government that I was like, no, I just want to know how to do this one thing. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm going to teach you how to fish. And I was like, what? He's <laughs> like, if I give you a fish in 10 minutes, you're going to be asking me another question. <laughs> I was like, oh. He's like, but if I teach you how to figure out the answer yourself, then you'll be set. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. And I worked a lot with him, and he was extremely helpful. In fact, um, I learned a lot from several people in, there, but it was just really nice to find people who wanted to teach me how to do things instead of um, just give me answers. So, yeah, so seeking great. out those kinds of relationships is good. Great. And I'm sure that's important, especially with data science, because um, as we've heard from other interviews, you're constantly learning. So knowing oh, yeah. how to learn and how to find resources is really important in this kind of job. Yeah. I also think it really helps when you see people that you can identify with in positions that you want to hold. So mm -hmm. both in my undergrad and then in my master's, my uh, research advisors were both women, which mm -hmm. Um, it's not always necessary, but it is really nice to see extremely smart, powerful women in positions that are like authoritative and that are making a difference and groundbreaking. And so both of them were very, uh, helped me be able to see that my path could lead further instead of just seeing all men, to be honest. Yeah, so in a lot of your classes, if you were in a machine learning program and then you ended up working, uh, you know, in the government, were a lot of your classes mostly male? Oh, yes. I had one pattern recognition course um, where the teacher, he thought he was so funny. He would be like, so what's the probability of a woman walking in the door? And I'm like, there's 40 of us and it's just me. And every day, that's the same. Like, it's, it's not funny, more funny every day that you say it. Oh my gosh. And you but, just keep at that all the time. Yeah, like, huh, there's still only me. Maybe but you were like right. the first woman he ever had in a class. <laughs> but the one thing about uh, grad school is, is there was like a very small cohort of us, of us women and everybody else was men. So we got to get be, to be pretty close, which was nice. Um, and have but, you kept in touch and used that network as you moved into your career? I wouldn't say that I necessarily leveraged the network. Well, maybe that's not true. To a certain extent, I think we all have. Um, but yeah, we stay connected. I have... Uh, some of those ladies are at companies or in the government, and um, like Samantha Track, she's an extremely talented woman. We went to grad school together, and she um, eventually came to Booz Allen to, to work with me, and well, not necessarily with me, but uh, because I enjoyed it so much, I was able to, to kind of pull her in right before I left, but uh, yeah, it is, it's important to have those relationships, I suppose, so you can continue to stay connected in like the outer part of the world. 
because we have a tendency to focus in and we live in a hole somewhat, <laughs> our cave maybe. Um, so it's good to have those, those extra little tentacles that stay out amongst the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. So um, I was reading your profile and when you got to Booz Allen, you did some big things from the point of view of data science stuff. So tell us about your time there and what you did. Oh, it was an amazing time. Uh, they actually have a really talented data science team, um, which allowed me to kind of learn things from people who specialize in lots of different areas, which is nice. So they have somebody you can talk to about text or if I have a question about, you know, and I'll you know, different kinds of NLP that there's somebody I can talk to about that, which is really nice. But because of we had such a, a nice size data science team, we were able to do other, I guess, more extracurricular activities than you would normally see at a consulting firm. So one of the one of the things that was um, really a lot of fun, I did explore data science, which you're like this little astronaut and you're traveling from planet to planet learning algorithms. And uh, the whole course is Python based, and that was a lot of fun. That was uh, kind of my baby as it grew up. And is that the one that's now through Metis? Yeah, yeah. So Metis are, uh, I think it's, I think Kaplan and Metis are the same company. I don't know, but okay. so they they've purchased it and they they now run it. But I actually just got access to that, so I'm excited to check it out. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it's nice to be able to do data science in a way that's more like it. So like what was your like role a game in that it's that? fun. Huh? Yeah, what was your role in that? Uh, so I was the team lead and uh, one of the major content developers. So we contracted with a uh, company called Code School, which is like they build all these different courses, right? So they did the graphics and the cool stuff like that. And then I, you know, wrote out, well, what is linear regression and those kinds of things. Um, and then I also had three or four other other people who also built out content for different things. Basically, when data scientists that were um, available had time, we were like, hey, pick a topic that you enjoy and then build out a module on it. And it turned out to be like a really good way to do things because uh, everybody has their own specialty. So that was really a lot of fun. and kinda... So each module of the course is kind of created by a different little team? Yeah, well, at least by a different person. Okay. Um, we reviewed each other's work to make sure that, you know, you don't miss things. But, uh, yeah, it was it was just kind of neat that it got, you, you got a little bit of flavor from different people. You'll notice that some of them are way more detailed, and those are probably our physics guys. <laughs> <laughs> My husband's they, a physicist, so I understand. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, see? Which is great, but sometimes it's painful. Um, depends on how much you wanted in your answer when you ask a question. But uh, yeah, they're, they're extremely smart and very helpful. So uh -huh. you'll see that there is, as you're working through it, there's, there's different flavor, which is not exactly consistent, but I think it's actually better that way. Yeah, at least it keeps it interesting. Uh, so one of the other things we did was the, the field guide to data science. Um, that was and how did that get initiated? Like who, whose idea was it to have a field guide for data science? You know, I don't know whether it was Josh Sullivan or Peter Guerra, but it was, I'm sure it was the duo of their two brains together. Um, but we all just kind of got in a room together and we're like, hey, this kind of needs to be done and hasn't really been done yet. There's lots of like disparate pieces of data science and we really need a cohesive picture across the company to, to be able to, to tell a client, well, what is data science? When you're signing up for these data scientists, what are you really trying to get? 
and uh, so it was originally thought of um, to be an internal document to be used just with clients and then later got released publicly or how it, what was that process yeah as we as we get, began to uh, start to produce different pieces of it so it started to kind of come out um, in drafts it became apparent that it was just really something that needed to be more public and our data science team is pretty strong about the fact that you know it's this is really a community thing and it's an ever-growing thing it's this never-ending changing morphing field and to, to kind of say that we know everything is is a little presumptuous and there's just so many fields and, and not that our team didn't cover a whole bunch of those corners of the world but it it's impossible to say that we cover everything and so we wanted to then kind of open it up as like a with the community saying hey we want feedback we want you know to bring other people in and you'll see on the second edition we have uh, numerous people that are now on the second edition of the field guide that are new or different or from other companies just because it really is um, you know the more heads you kind of bring together the better it's going to be so you mentioned at the beginning that you didn't want to do math just to become a math teacher, but now you're teaching data science <laughs> through these different products and books. That so is true. <laughs> how does it feel to um, be, how do you feel about teaching it versus, you know, being really, I guess, like in the field applying it, you know, how to, or do you still get to do both? Yeah, so luckily at Booz Allen, I got to do a little bit of everything, which kind of kept me from being bored, which is probably... I don't know, it's one of my qualities that is maybe not a quality, but that I, you know, I get bored easy. I, I can't, you know, do the same thing every day, every day, which is one of the nice things about data science is it's generally not. But so being able to do things like the book so that we're all, everybody's on the same page, as well as like, okay, and Explore Data Science was built to actually internally train um, our internal team, like to continually train uh, the people that wanted to become data scientists, um, which then was later released. But um, so being able to do those things was fun, but because they were not my sole purpose, I think is what kind of made them just like a little fun thing on the side. That then my my main focus has been client driven in the field problems. So solving problems for pharmaceutical companies or hedge funds or oil and gas, um, as well as a lot of different you know like marketing and things like that as well. So can you give any examples of those type of projects and what tools you used and what kind of problems you were solving? Sure. So uh, I use a broad range of tools because we generally, every time you get dropped into a new contract, you have to use whatever's best for that problem and that client, um, and, and that's continuously changing. So uh, my main tools have always been, Python is my, my general go-to, Python, R, um, JavaScript for different kinds of visualizations like D3 and then when you get into bigger and bigger realms um, I still was using a lot of Python um, initially and then as things like Spark came out and were available I've, I've definitely moved to Spark has been useful now there's things like H2O um, and TensorFlow is coming out, like becoming more popular. So just trying the different tools based off of what the needs are of the client, um, which means that I've had to have the ability to continually pick up new languages and new tools while I'm also solving everybody's problems. Um, 
which is fun. I like, I like the challenge. Um, so an example of a project, let's see. Um, a lot of it's proprietary, so um, I can't share it a whole lot, but there's mm -hmm. um, a lot of projects that I've got to do were social good projects, which is kind of fun. Uh, Luz Allen spends a lot of uh, time and investment in those kinds of things. So um, there's a human trafficking project that I was heavily involved with that we brought in um, a whole bunch of young girls, uh, and it, we called it a... Was it STEM Girls for Social Good was the mm -hmm. project. And so we brought in a whole bunch of younger girls and taught them Python programming and then started building these human trafficking models um, based off of different demographics and data we were able to acquire um, in relationships with other companies. And, and so that was kind of fun. So being able to do that to where we can predict whether or not, like, how a caseload should be. So if they say some... Uh, FBI agent has like his huge stack of, of cases, which ones should he bubble to the top to look at first? Um, as far as which ones would be more likely to be somebody that they really need to, to pay attention to. Um, and so what were the data, what, what did the data look like? What were the inputs for that type of model? Uh, basic information that you could get from case files. So things like where they've been, if they've been arrested before, um, how many, how, how long it's been since they were released from prison or how many known associates they have, um, those kinds of things, which incorporate, you know, graph theory, like the social graph, as well as just some other more basic features. But that was kind of the fun part is they got to spend some time thinking about the feature engineering piece and what could give you inf insight into this world and, and things like that, so... Yeah, that's great. And I really like that you were able to get younger girls involved to tell them about um, these possibilities before they go to school to kind of give them ideas that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily have heard when we were in school. Yeah, yeah. That's so important to me. And I love that. Oh, man, it seems so crazy that I even left Booz Allen for as much as I am still such a huge fan. Um, but they, they put a lot of time and energy into, into things like that. And so that was one of the reasons why I stayed with them as long as I did. So you mentioned you left. What do you do now? So now I'm a chief data scientist at MyStrength, which is a startup company. And they have a product. It's essentially you have a set of apps that, that work um, on either your phone or on the computer. And they, they're based on helping people reach to mental health resources. So whether you're struggling with depression or anxiety or substance abuse, just being able to, to reach out to some uh, clinically proven research or, uh, resources and, and those kinds of things. So making those available to people no matter whether they live, you know, really far away, but they have a smartphone or, or whatever is it's really cool. So I'm, again, still getting to do things that impact, which is important to me, um, but still doing data science. So I'm hoping to do uh, recommendations and things like that. I'm just jumping in now and getting my feet wet, but uh, it's a great team, and I have lots of exciting ideas to, to work through with them. So, And what is it like going to a startup after having been in government and consulting? <laughs> Strange, but <laughs> wonderful. It's you know, there's good and bad about everything. I'm excited to not be traveling as much. 
which will be nice because, um, you know, if somebody has data that they don't want to let out of their little box, you have to go fly to them. Um, so it's nice that I get to, to hang out where the data lives as well as go into a, a very relaxed office. I don't wear a suit anymore. And the fridge is stocked with fun things and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's very much this the startup life that people talk about, which is nice. And it's I think it's really fun to be able to to build something and be right there next to people where I can be like, wait a second, I don't understand this. Why are you doing this way? And then instead of like having to get on the phone or possibly fly to DC, I can just, we can walk over to a whiteboard and, and figure it out, which is nice. That's cool. So are you, are you their first data scientist? I, I am sort of, they have, um, more clinically focused people who support it from a statistical point of view. Uh, but I'm going to be their first kind of machine learning geared um, employee, and we're hoping to to continue to to grow and and see how things go. So that's exciting. Yeah. Okay, so you've kind of covered the the gamut in terms of things that you've done from grad school, all the different tools you used, you know, Python and R and recommendation and and um, agent based systems. So. Where would you recommend that somebody started if they were interested in getting into what you're doing? Like, for instance, if they're interested in using machine learning to, to help people, um, where's a good starting point and what should they learn first? That's a good question. Um, I would say figure out what your tool that you enjoy using is. So people can be very successful with many different kinds of tools, whether you're a SAS person, or you're an Excel ninja, or uh, Python, R, Pig, there's a lot of different tools, and there isn't one specific one that solves everything. So I would say try a couple of different things, like a, uh, Code Academy has a nice Python class that I think is free, and you can try it there, see that's something that clicks with you, and if it doesn't, try something else. So don't feel like the tool is I don't know, uh, required. Like, don't, don't, don't hold yourself to any specific tool. Somebody tells you that if you don't learn Python, you can't be a data science, you tell me you might. But um, as far as that goes, pick a tool that's comfortable for you and then just try different problems. So uh, Kaggle is an excellent resource for little projects. So try different kinds of things like that. And, and once you get your feet wet and feel out whether or not it's something you really enjoy, then, then move forward because just like any job, like it's going to be your job for the rest of your life, right? So if you're going to get really good at something, make sure it's something you enjoy because it requires a lot of persistence and curiosity to be happy and successful, I think. And for me, I really, really love what I do. Like I love solving problems and digging down. And if you don't, don't force yourself into something because it's a cool, hip data science thing right now, which I feel like a lot of people are doing. They're like, I need you to turn these people into my data scientists. And I was like, do they know that? Or are they interested? <laughs> like, um, there isn't like some magic button to do that for people, but uh, companies would like to think so. So uh, yeah, just kind of feel it out and and follow follow what you enjoy in your in your heart, and then. As time continues on, um, I connect with those people, connect with those professors, connect with those people around you, 
Um, I'm still strongly connected with a couple people from um, oil and gas that uh, were studying to be data scientists and, and they're brilliant and so I, you know, make time to connect with them and to, to continue to help foster that relationship and teach them things because people did that for me. So reach out, find people who, are, who can help guide you and encourage you even when it's hard because sometimes you're going to want to pound your head against the wall, but there is a solution. Stay strong. And then once you figure out that you do like that kind of problem solving and constant learning that data science requires and you've picked up a tool, how do you get involved in some of the data science for good type of things that you've been involved in? Well, uh, luckily, uh, Buzan kind of orchestrated a lot of that. <laughs> so it was kind of cheating in terms like that. But there are different events that go on. So there's uh, companies and organizations like DataKind and they're really just, there's a lot of people out there who want to do good things. And, you know, when you're beginning to look at positions and being able to position yourself for a career in the path you want to take, uh, consider what's important to you. Not everybody's interested in, in social um, issues. Some people are really just driven by they want to make money. And if you want to do that, then you might want to look at, you know, making ads pop up for people and focus on those kinds of things and those kinds of groups and, and those kinds of forums, things like that, so you can continue to grow that skill. Um, and then there's other paths. If, if that's not really what your focus is, if you're worried about mental health or you're worried about um, people getting water, things like that, there is a lot of, and just get your Google Foo on and, and find people who are interested because um, there's a lot of people who are willing to kind of continue to bring new people on and along and give them direction and, and things like that. So. Well, that's great. All right. So I think that's a good point to wrap up and thank you for all your good advice. So if somebody wanted to find you online and connect with you, uh, where can they do that? Well, I'm not a super active tweeter, but I am to a certain extent. Um, so I'm at data ginger ninja and, <laughs> uh, so I, I do check my tw my Twitter every once in a while. So, Feel free to, to tweet at me or send me a direct message or follow me, whatever. Um, I love to connect with other people looking to, to get nerdy. That's great. And I'll second that. Twitter is a great place to learn about data science and connect with other data scientists. And that's how I found you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. It was great talking to you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Now let's talk about the Becoming a Data Scientist Data Science Learning Club Activity 11 on logistic regression. This will be another machine learning practice task, and I'll provide links and references as usual in the Learning Club forums at becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. Logistic regression is somewhat similar to linear regression, which we did in Activity 7, except it's usually used when the result is categorical. It's kind of, sort of, a classification system in that way, but what it's really outputting is a probability that your input values result in a certain outcome that's usually one of two options, or binary. The example on Wikipedia is a good one, which models the likelihood of passing an exam based on the number of hours spent studying. So the dependent variable, or the outcome, is binary, either passing the exam, which you can call a result of 1, or failing the exam, which you can call a result of 0. 
If you plotted the values, you'd put hours of studying on the x-axis, and the dots representing the students would all have a y-value of either 0 or 1. The logistic regression model ends up looking like a stretched out letter S on this chart, where the top right side curves up towards 1, and the bottom left side is the bottom of the S curving down towards 0. The inflection point in the middle is usually at the 0.5 line, or 50% probability. And then in the example, that lines up with just under 3 hours of studying for the exam. So if you had a student that studied for more than 3 hours, like maybe 4 hours, the probability of passing that you get is higher than 0.5, in this case 0.8 for 4 hours. So you would classify someone that studied for 4 hours as likely to pass. Of course, in most cases, you'll have more than one input variable. So maybe a binary indicator of whether the student is passing the class prior to the test, the age of the student, the total number of course credits, whether or not the student ate breakfast on the day of the test, or their overall GPA, for example, grade point average. These can become additional predictors for logistic regression, but the output is generally binary or categorical. There are other logistic regression models. You may read the term OVR, which stands for one versus rest. That one outputs the likelihood of the input predictor variables resulting in a particular categorical result over all of the other possible results. Multinomial logistic regression gives the probability of each of the possible categorical outcomes. You will learn other terms when learning about logistic regression, such as log odds and heteroskedasticity. I hope I said that right. <laughs> I'll put the links in the Learning Club post, which again is at becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. I'm also hoping to have a really cool episode up in the next week or so, where I'll interview members of the Learning Club to see how things are going for them so far. So if you've been hesitant about diving into the learning activities, or just curious about the club, be sure to catch that episode to hear from real people that have joined in and are learning by doing the activities together. The Data Science Learning Club is sponsored by DataCamp, which has some awesome courses for beginners in R and now Python. Once you check out their free content at datacamp.com, sign up for the Learning Club, and you'll get access to a forum that has a discount link for more than 60% off your first month's DataCamp subscription. This is a special benefit for Learning Club members. So thank you for listening to the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. Of course, I always appreciate reviews online, whether you're listening to this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other app. And reviews help others find out about the podcast too. You can also give me feedback by contacting me on Twitter at becomingdatasci, or comment on the blog post with the show notes for this episode. I look forward to hearing from you.